Thank you, Pastor Rob and uh, elders, for the privilege for me to be able to share with you uh, for uh, three Sundays in a row, today, next Sunday, and then the third Sunday as well. And I've looked forward to this and uh, uh, with great anticipation. Most of you who have known the Lord a few years, and especially those of you who uh, love church history, will recognize the name of John Knox. And John Knox is usually listed right there among the reformers. And uh, the reformation of the 16th, 17th century made a great impact all over Europe and the United States of America. And we benefit as we sit here today because of it. They say that uh, Martin Luther carried the torch. They say that John Calvin carried the pen. Uh, but it was John Knox who carried the sword. Epi Meyer describes him as a stern man for a stern age. But something happened in John Knox's life that changed that. At the age of 56, this widower married a 16-year-old lassie in the church. Now you just think about that for a moment. Imagine a 56-year-old man here at OBC marrying your 16-year-old daughter. Uh, there might be some raised eyebrows. The good thing that came out of that, though, was they say that the last year of John Knox's life, uh, the sternness was replaced by gentleness, tenderness, and a uh, sense of great loving kindness. And all that was due to Margaret Stewart, the 16-year-old lassie that he married. Toward the end of his life, he had a terminal disease. He knew he was a dying man. And so one day he said to his wife, he said, uh, go please read from the Bible where I first cast my anchor. Now if I said to you, read to me where I first cast my anchor, you wouldn't have a clue where to turn to. But she didn't ask, she went, she found the scriptures where he had been preaching from for, for years so faithfully. And she turned where I'm going to ask you to turn this morning, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 17. And she read that portion to him. In fact, A.W. Pink in his biography, he says that for the last few months of his life, every day, uh, John Knox had John 17 written to him. Uh, it's a wonderful place to read, to meditate. I've been doing it for about eight months, I think, every day. And uh, just every day, I, I'm trying to memorize it. Have you discovered, as you get older, it's more difficult to memorize? <laughs> I got it, and then I've lost it. <laughs> so that's the way it kind of goes. But uh, just, uh, just dwelling on that, it's, it's become my favorite chapter in the Bible. If you limited me to one chapter, I would choose this chapter uh, right here. It's so moving. For the last few weeks leading up to Easter two weeks ago, uh, we led into Passion Week and then the glorious celebration of Easter. But we emphasized the suffering of Christ. Uh, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, and then culminating in the glorious resurrection. And we love those words of Jesus from the cross, sometimes called the seven last words, seven last things. One of which is simply one word, which is tetelestai, which being translated in our English Bible, is it is finished. And Jesus accomplished the work of redemption 
for man and for him to have eternal life through his gift. So the finished work of Christ is something we love to meditate upon. But for the next three Sundays, we're going to be in John 17. And we're going to focus on the unfinished work of Christ. And if, as the Savior on the cross, he was the prophet of God, and if in the future he comes and his feet light upon the Maldive Valleys, he's the King of Kings. Now, in this age, we're going to emphasize in these next three Sundays the fact that he's not only a prophet and king, but he's our great high priest at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Many of you can remember and maybe not that long ago, people who prayed, could be a man, a mom, a grandma, a dad, a pastor, a lay person. And when they prayed, it just kind of stirred your hearts. And I remember even watching the service online here the last three months when we were down south, and uh, they always had this, the video come up, people praying. And you engage in all the prayers, you appreciate it all, but there's sometimes a prayer that just kind of moves you. The person moves you, uh, and it becomes a very moving prayer. Not to embarrass you, Ben, but your prayer did that to me. It moved me greatly. And, um, and others of you as well. And um, I can remember, I, I can go back to two prayers that I still almost know word for word today, and they're from my father. One was 70 years ago. I was a young boy, believe it or not. Uh, and then the other was 60 years ago. But I can still hear it. I know what he said. And they were very, as you can see, even moving to me um, today. But far beyond those prayers and any other prayers, uh, Jesus prayed unto God his Father. And this is the lo longest continuous prayer of Jesus uh, in the Gospels. As you read it, the sentences are simple, and yet the ideas are deep, moving, and meaningful. Philip Melanchthon is another name those of you who love church history recognize. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. In fact, they were such close friends and buddies that both were buried in the same vault in the same church over in Germany. And Philip Melanchthon said this about John 17. He says, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself. One side of me doesn't like to even divide this chapter into parts because the thought has come to me for months Every time I read this chapter, it's like the tunic of Jesus at the cross that they didn't want to divide. It was a, a woven, seamless uh, piece of clothing that is probably his mother made for Jesus. And that's the way kind of a look at John 17. It's just kind of like one woven, beautiful fabric, and you don't like to dissect it. But it does have three movements to it, and if you follow, if you have a copy of scriptures, uh, you're going to see it, where Jesus prays for himself, and that's going to be today. Then, Lord willing, next Sunday, Jesus prayed for the apostles. Uh, and then the third Sunday, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prayed for whom? For his church. Who's the church? That's you. Think of that. You're going to listen and hear the prayer Jesus made 
for Osterville Baptist Church and for you. So verse 1, he prays for himself, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. There it is. That's it in summary. That's his prayer, glorify your son. Then he comes down and he makes a little transition in verses 6 to 8, and then you read in verse 9, I am praying for them. Now, who's the them? Well, in the context, it's clear. It's the apostles. But then you come down to verse 20, I do not ask for these alone, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me, future tense, through their word. That's you and me, that's the church. And so Jesus prays for himself, for the apostles, and then uh, he prays for the church uh, as well. I don't think there's any least question in my mind, this is the greatest prayer in all the Bible. And if ever we're entering the holiest of holies, it is these three Sundays uh, together. I mean, every time I think on it, and every time I get to the chapter, I'm thinking of the phenomenal privilege we have 2,000 years later to hear one member of the Trinity talk to another member of the Trinity. God the Son talks to God the Father on the evening of his betrayal, his rejection, his suffering, his death. So I pick it up in verse 1 with you just to get the setting for it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you and Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, as we look at this, Jesus praying for himself, there's three thoughts that might help us to bring it all together. Number one is what I call simply the place of prayer. And when I speak of the place of prayer, I'm not only speaking geographically, but chronologically as well. And we can, beyond any question, place the prayer just before our Lord is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we compare chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, notice the same words appear in chapter 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. And so uh, both of these come together, and when you look at chapter 17, 1, it says that uh, he lifted his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. And then at 18, when he says, when he had spoken these words, that is the words of the prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. And so in John 17, it is part of what is called the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. If you take the Gospel of John, there's one purpose, and it's plainly given for us, John 20, 30, 31, it's to show forth the deity of Christ and that you might believe that and have eternal life. And then if you just take the prologue aside, verses 1 to 18, and you get into the text from chapters 1 to 12, it's the revelation of Jesus to the world. It's what you and I might call evangelism, reaching the lost. So you have 
the Samaritan woman, you have Nicodemus, you have the adulterous woman. And it goes on through of people who needed to hear the good news. But in John 13, it shifts. You go to what is called the upper room discourse. If Jasper's 1 to 12 is his revelation to the world, chapter 13 to 17 is revelation to his own. And he brings the, together his disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem. And he's going to share what Ray Steadman calls in the title of his book on that section of scripture, The Secrets of the Spirit. He's going to unbear his heart and soul to them so they know what he wants and desires for them to have in ministry. And then when you finish 17, you go into the passion, the resurrection, and uh, the post-loot. So here we are in John chapter 17. At the end of uh, John 14, he says this in the upper room. He says, arise, let us go from here. Now I assume that, and it doesn't say, but I assume that he literally got up with his disciples and they left the upper room. And so those of you who have been to, to Jerusalem, you can probably have seen the upper room, not the original upper room, but a uh, a replica of it, but they know the general area where it was located. And so you picture in your mind leaving that upper room, and if he's going to go over eventually to Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, then probably he went out the eastern gate past the temple. And perhaps he stopped at the temple because on the door of the temple was a, engraved a vine and the vine was the symbol, remember, of Israel in the Old Testament, especially when you get to the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5. Maybe he stopped there. Again, conjecture. Maybe he stopped there and he pointed to that vine. He says, hey, by the way, what? I'm the true vine and you're the branches. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit who's going to come and be with them. But he's going to depart. And now he's praying this, this prayer. After these things, Jesus lifted his head to heaven. He said, Father, Father, mine hours come. Glorify thy son, that the son may glorify you. And then after he prayed that prayer, he then went further, and he's going to go to Gethsemane. On the way to Gethsemane, he's got to cross the Kidron Brook. Now, that's fascinating to me as I just stop and I, I dwell a little bit on this. Why? Why is that important? Because to me, it's a very touching, moving thing. A contemporary of Jesus, who was a great historian, he said that at the time of Jesus, during the Passover, which this is the time of the Jewish Passover, up in the upper room, when he also instituted the Lord's Supper that we'll partake of later. But it was at that time when Jesus uh, was leaving and crossing the Kidron Brook that in the temple at Passover time, the historian says there were 256,000 lambs that were slain. Over a quarter million, because the Jews came from all over the Roman Empire, the known world at that time. It was one of the feasts they were required to go to Jerusalem. So he said 256,000 lambs were slain. Can you even begin to imagine the amount of blood that was shed at that time? So what do you do with the blood in the holy temple of God? Well, they had a conduit. And the conduit ran from underneath out the temple and down to the Kidron Brook. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus now is crossing the Kidron Brook. And the Kidron Brook at this time was a mute reminder of death. The stench of blood was in the air. 
Dare I say the brook was flowing red with the blood of the Passover lambs. And when Jesus looked at that blood, he knew that it was but a type of his blood. Every Passover lamb was a type of Christ. Paul makes that claim. We don't, we don't have to guess. We don't have to try to infer it. Paul says, Christ, our what? Passover is sacrificed for us. And so there on the heart and mind of Jesus now, he's crossing that kindred book, and he knew that those slams were pictures of his own impending death. Now, it would seem at first that this is a dark time, a discouraging time, a troublesome time. But as you really meditate on this chapter, you'll see it's a chapter filled with great faith. Not only great faith, with, but with a victorious ring to it. While acknowledging there is tremendous conflict and spiritual warfare. So Jesus leans against heaven at this time, and he prays to his Father, not seeking to bend the Father to him, because one of the things you will see in this chapter is the absolute unity of the, of the Godhead, the Trinity, but especially the emphasis on God the Father and God the Son, and he is voicing the purpose of the Godhead. You know, by application, I thought, though, Death is the last enemy. And when a person is facing death, if you have somebody you love very much and they're terminal, if you've heard the doctor say it's a terminal illness, it's aggressive, it's malignant, a month, six months, we don't know, then you know there's no greater drive in the heart of the child of God to pray than at the time of death. And Jesus invites us to do that, even as he leaned against the Father because his death at the most is 12 to 15 hours away. Now, what's the purpose of the prayer? What is the purpose of the prayer? I've uh, kind of summarized it in a few words on the screen. Jesus prayed that the glory that he set aside, which he had for all eternity past, and he set that glory aside. And then he came in the form of a servant in the likeness of men. And he took on a human body. And so when Jesus walked down the street, you didn't see Shekinah glory halo about him. He unveiled some of that glory from time to time. But normally he looked just like any other Jewish. He's laid aside that eternal glory in order to take on the form of a man and the servant of God. And he's praying now that that glory he set aside willingly would be restored to him in the near future. And the only way that can be restored is if the Father stamps the seal of approval, well done, you have finished the work I asked you to do. The emphasis, I think, in this chapter, and don't miss it, if you if you read this chapter and you don't think of the word glory, you've missed the whole chapter. The emphasis is on the glory of God. The word is used eight times in this chapter. It's used uh, five times right here in this section dealing with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus adds perspectives and layers of understanding as he moves through the petitions in this chapter to which you will probably find there are about six specific requests that, that he makes. And it's not long before we recognize that those they are six specific petitions. They're all woven together like that seamless garment, such that none can be removed with unraveling all of them. And together, catch this, they are all anchored in what? The love of God, the sovereignty and supremacy of God, and more than anything else, the glory of God. So when you read John 17, and as you listen in the next few weeks, in the back of your mind, I hope you're going to see the love of God, his supremacy and sovereignty, and the glory of God. Which begs the question, just what is the glory of God anyway? When Paul says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. The glory of God, as I understand it, if I, and I'm a simple man, the glory of God, as I understand it, is if you take the sum total of all the graces and attributes of God, that's the glory of God. So when you think of God Almighty and think of all of his attributes, some say there's eight, some 10, some 12, and then all the graces of who, who, what makes up the character of God, that is the glory of our great God and our Savior. Jesus' prayer for himself, the manifestation of the glory of God through him. Don't miss this. It's easy to miss. It's easy to gloss over. In, that first, in that, those first few words, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he said what? Father, the hour is, has come. And with these words, Jesus is looking forward with obvious anticipation to boundless opportunities that lie before him. Notice he speaks, mine hour has come. That's speaking of the purpose of why he was born. His faith thinks upon what is before him. He knows he knows every kiss of betrayal, every stripping of the flush of the scourging, the nails, the spear, the mocking, the rejection. And he just brings it all together into an hour. My hour, the purpose for why I came. Gethsemane's midnight, how dark it was. The morning scoffing, beatings, and scourging at the mock trials. The day of crucifixion, all but an hour, a short space. His travail has come, but he counts it as an hour for joy of that which shall be born in the world by his grievous pangs. What love. What humility. So when you go through pangs, let that phrase sink deep in your heart. The hour. The hour has come. Paul would say it this way. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not 
worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's just an hour, my friend, that you're going through. Just an hour. Throughout his ministry, Jesus continually refers to this hour had come. In the beginning of John, you remember, he did the first miracle in the city of Cana of Galilee. And there in that city, you remember, he was invited to a wedding. His disciples were invited. Mary was invited, his mother. Some believe it was Nathaniel's wedding, by the way. We don't know for certain, but we do know Nathaniel was from Galilee. Whatever it was, all the family and disciples were, were invited. Now, there's one thing you better do if you're going to be in Israel and have a wedding feast. You better have some good wine and lots of food, and you better have enough to last for a week. And if you don't, and you run out of food, or you run out of wine, if you go back in the historical documents, they could perform a legal lawsuit against you. So make sure you got some good Canaan grapes handy. So mother comes to him at the wedding and says, son, they have no wine. And then Jesus says, what? Woman, I never called my mother a woman. She was mom, she was mother, the dearest on earth. If I ever called her woman, I guarantee it would have been the last time I called her woman. <laughs> But yet I want to also say that this is not a term of disrespect. Jesus, as with Mary as his mother, is in a kind of a dual capacity. Humanity, he's born of the Virgin Mary, but he's the eternal God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The, the miracle of the virgin birth, the miracle that God performed, that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. He was free from any contamination of sin. That was a second miracle in the womb of Mary, so that he was born the sinless Son of God. But when he said, woman, what have I to do? Remember, that's the same exact word that he uses at one of the most intimate moments when he's hanging on the cross, and we know the seven last words, seven last things. And he looks down from the cross, and there's his mom. And he says, woman, same word, behold thy son. That would be John the apostle. And he looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. In other words, you're going to have to take care of her now. And he commits her to uh, his care. Two other times in, we know in John alone, John 7, John 8, the disciples were pressing him, and he had the same answer. Mine hour is not yet come. So he was awaiting a time, and he knew when that time would come, he would know it, when opportunity would abound. And now as he comes to the cross, he lifts his eyes unto the heavens. Father, the hour has come. And he's going in that hour to bring everything he's done to fulfillment and purpose and glory. And if that hour he had never chosen to walk through, everything he said, everything he did would not amount to a hill of beans. Only when the hour has come does the glory of God come forth. 
And by that he meant an hour in which he had lived for would begin to be fulfilled. And this was in a, a fulfillment of the anticipation that he put on his disciples just before the upper room discourse in John chapter 12, verse 24, which Pastor Rob uh, linked us to back on Good Friday. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if, if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's the, there's the core foundation of what it means that mine hour has now come. Because Jesus knew that God's work is never accomplished apart from the principle of death. That everything he did, all those miracles, water one, Capernaum, the sun healed, impotent man, 5,000 fed, walking on water, blind man healed, Lazarus raised from the dead. All those great claims. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. The seven I am's. Nothing. Apart from the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. Only then can it bring forth fruit. Unless this kernel of wheat dies, it remains alone. Never will do anything else because it cannot. To the world, the cross was the emblem of shame. To heaven, it was the emblem of glory. This is why we also must pray this prayer. We'll never pray it in the sense that Jesus prayed it. He alone could pray that prayer because he alone could accomplish the plan of redemption. But we too are always coming to ours like this in our own lives. And by application, we can pray this prayer. We come to places where we must say, consciously, dare I say verbally, Father, my hour has come. The hour where I must make a choice as to whether I will hold my life dear unto myself or whether I will count it all loss to gain the riches of Christ. To understand the words of Jesus when he says, if any man is willing to follow me, let him deny himself and take up the what? That's one word, friend. And that one word, cross, to substitute is the word death. Your mother-in-law is not your cross to bear. Your grumpy boss isn't your cross to bear. That's stupidity. Don't be stupid. The cross is death. So Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lived with me. Of the life that I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. And to the church at Corinth, he would write, I die daily. Every day, I think Paul started out the day, I die daily. To my self-will, my self-glory, my self-attainment, self, self, self. And it's the ugliest thing in the world. The glory of God is the most magnificent thing in the world. If we see these times of devastation, I don't know what you're going through. I know what some are going through. 
Some lost a loved one just recently. If you lose a mom, a dad, a child, a grandchild, it's devastating. It's a great loss. Someone's got a child that's overdosed and they died. Someone's grandson got picked up for drugs. Somebody did something they wouldn't normally do when they were drunk and they're in prison. And you live with that. But that's the time you say, my hour has come. Will I see it and see it only through the eyes of my humanity or will I see it from an eternal, spiritual, and biblical perspective? That God might be glorified. Say, well, it doesn't make me very happy. God doesn't care anything about your happiness. He cares only about your conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ and the joy that brings. Happiness is always based on externalities and circumstances. My prayer is that we don't miss the eternal opportunities and possibilities God puts in our hand. Don't blow it away. You don't see the eternal purpose God does. And all things really do work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. There's a prayer deep in relationship of the Holy Trinity. But as a child of God, we can come to our loving Father as well in times of deepest pain. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, the hour is come. And that prayer, Father, the hour has come. Now glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And on that third day, hallelujah, when Jesus burst out of that tomb alive forevermore, I hear the voice of God saying, I am fully propitiated and, and satisfied with the death of my son. He is resurrected, soon to be ascended, soon to come back as king of kings and set about all the eternal future for the people he has redeemed. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a Lord. And he's personal. Yet it pleased the Father to bruise him. I'll never understand that. And to put him to grief. With one hand he smote him, with the other hand he glorified him. With one hand he crushed him, with the other he sustained him, all working together at the same time. The Father glorified his Son. You'll never see the glory of God anywhere that even compares to looking at the cross. If all we knew of God was he spoke the world into existence, I'd say, boy, he is omnipotent. He's a designer. He is so perfect. But only at the cross do I see God commends his love toward me that while I was yet a sinner, Rob said it, and God used it Good Friday, and I've said it for years upon years. I've said Christ died for the sins of the world, but he died for my sins. I believe that. But it's something about I was sitting right back about right there. 
when it, it, it dawned on me, I mean, it came home to me, I should say, I guess, that if I'd been the only human on earth or you, Christ would have died on the cross just for you. That's how much he loves you. And then it dawned on me, I put him on the cross. I killed him. My sins nailed him to the cross. What love. What great humility of our Lord Jesus. So we pray, Father, strike away the shackles of my unbelief and train me, disciple me to make the choice to die to myself in hope and faith that will result in blessing and glory. We often say at a situation, ask, what would Jesus do? I know what he would do. He's the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. And he says, die to yourself. It's not about you. From a human point of view, Calvary magnified man's depravity and sin, but from heaven's point of view, the cross revealed and magnified the grace and the glory of our great God. Let's close the message with just a couple of thoughts on the people in his prayer, verses 2 to 5. Jesus anticipates his return to heaven when he says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. I accomplished the work you gave me to do. There it is. Let that sink in. Don't come to the end of life and leave your work unfinished. He's got a work for you to do. Doesn't call to care about your status. Don't, doesn't care how you look among others. He cares about you and your character and your will to follow him. That's what he cares about. And he's got a work for you to do. Doesn't care that you shot par. Could care less. He cares about you and that you do his will and finish the work he gave you to do. Now here's a really touching verse. If you look at verse 2, since you have given him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Do you see that? Usually we think, when we think of God's love gift, we think of God's love gift in Christ to us. Now stay with me just for a minute. And we say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He becomes God's love gift to you and me. But do you see what he says in verse 2 up there? He says, you are God's love gift to Jesus. I want, to, I want you to think about the person you love more than anyone else in this life. And I want you to think you want to give that person a gift. What kind of gift you want to give? You want to give the most meaningful gift that will really move and touch the heart. And God chose you in eternity past. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless and love, having predestinated us to the adoption of sons. God in eternity past chose you. Now you know what he's doing? He's taken you and he's given you as a love gift to Jesus. Now you only give a gift that you treasure. That means something special. You are special. Whoever you are, you're special. God's love gift to his son, if you believe and trust in his son as your savior. Just last night, I got word of this from a chaplain that 
An inmate said to the chaplain, here's all he said, thanking you, I thank you for making me know I was worth something. So often, many believe they have no value. They're angry, they lash out, and guess what? If they don't have value, they don't think you have value, and that's why they hurt other people. And then sitting there in a cell, and someone comes along and says, no, 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 no. You are special. God loves you. Some that, sometimes it's the first time you've ever heard that. You could be sitting here, it's the first time you've heard it. How much God loves you just as you are. And he gives all the authority to Jesus. Now thou to give eternal life to those who believe on him. And what is eternal life? Verse 3, this is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There it is. And it's the Greek word gnosko, which in opposition to oida, it's not intellectual knowledge, it's a personal experience. So that you know him experientially. Years ago, I used to enjoy watching the Larry King show and uh, loved his interviews. I loved especially when he interviewed Billy Graham time and time again, John MacArthur, other great evangelists and teachers. And um, on his last show, that's how I remember him right there, that picture. On his last show, he did something different. Rather than him interviewing somebody, he allowed somebody to interview him. And the, no holds barred. They could ask any question they wanted to ask. He chose Brian Gumbel to be the interviewer. And at the last question to close out the hour in the, in the television series, here's what Brian said to Larry. He said, Larry, if you could interview God and you could only ask him one question, what would that question be? And that's how I remember him, just kind of like, I think I've thought of this before, but, and he's just thinking. And then after about 30 seconds or so, he said, I would ask God, do you really have a son? That's a great question. We know the answer. Indeed he does. And they are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a few questions I'll ask you, and then I'll sit down while I have communion. It's in the words of an old hymn, probably haven't sung it for 40 years. Have you a heart that's weary, tending a load of care? Are you a soul that's seeking rest from the burden you bear? Who knows your disappointments? Who knows each time you cry? Who understands your heartaches? Who dries the tears from your eyes? And here's my favorite. Do you know my Jesus? Do you know my friend? Have you heard how he loves you and that he will abide to the end? If you're here today and you've never passed over the line from death to life, from eternal death to eternal life, from the forgiveness of sins, from condemnation to justification, I urge you, cross the line, make the decision today. Just think about you are God's love gift to his son, and you say, Lord, I believe that. And if you're a Christian, you're going through a hard time, just remember, 
I die daily. Use that as a glorious opportunity for God to be glorified through your response. Lord, have your way now upon our hearts and lives as we come to the elements that speak of your body that bore our sins and your blood that washes our sins away. In Jesus' name, amen.